John the Baptist, uh, we're going to be looking at him again. He was quite a man, and he was quite a man that really we should emulate in a number of ways. You know, he was the one that Jesus himself said, among those born of women, there has had not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. That's a pretty good commendation, isn't it? Wouldn't you love that said about you? Except instead of man, woman. <laughs> Jesus also said that he was a burning and shining light. That's a wonderful commendation about this man. John the Baptist was really quite a fellow, very bold. Now, what were some of the leading aspects and strong features about the ministry of, of John the Baptist? Well, first of all, John the Baptist spoke very plainly about sin. We discussed this last time. He talked about sin, and he talked about the absolute necessity of repentance. What was repentance? What is repentance? Right, it's a turning from sin. It's a change of your mind and it's a change of your attitude about your own sinful condition. And a change in my, and of mind and attitude about the absolute necessity that we have as sinners for a savior. So he taught about that. He said, you know, it's, it's necessary to repent and then be saved. He also, as we're going to learn this morning, he taught about genuine repentance being proven by fruits. There are fruits to determine whether or not we have truly been repentant. And uh, he, secondly, John spoke very plainly about our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these are all things that you and I should speak about as we go in the world as the salt of the world. We should tell people they don't like to hear it, but we should tell people about their sinful nature and not put ourselves on a pedestal as being any better because we're all sinners saved by grace, right? Um, we need to tell them about sin and what the Bible has to say about sin, and then we need to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need to be talking about anybody else but the Lord Jesus Christ. The focus isn't on Mary. The focus isn't on any other quote-unquote saint. We're all saints if you're saved. You don't have to be martyred to be a saint. You don't have to have your picture in a stained glass window to be a saint. We don't have to pray to saints. We don't have to pray to Mary. We can go boldly before the throne of grace, right? So we need to be talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and John did that. John understood that. He said that he was much mightier. Christ was much mightier than himself. Remember when he said, he must increase and I must decrease. Uh, he knew, he understood that he was nothing but a servant. He was the, he was the friend of the bride groom, right? And Christ is the bridegroom. He said he could only baptize with water, but the one who was coming, the coming mighty one, would baptize with what? With who? Right, the Holy Spirit and with fire, with judgment. And the one coming behind him, who was, of course, Jesus Christ, um, would be the one who would take away sin's ugly stain forever. John couldn't do that. John couldn't take away anybody's sin. He was merely preparing them. He was preparing the way for the one who would come behind him who would take away sin's stain forever and ever for those who would trust in him. All right, thirdly, he spoke about the Holy Spirit. Again, this is what we need to do. We need to also talk about the Holy Spirit which is something that needs to be re-emphasized among, among evangelicals today. I think sometimes we get too afraid to sp speak about the Holy Spirit. 
but the whole the, we must not only have the work of Christ for us of course his work on the cross for us but we need the work of the Holy Spirit in us right so that we might be made more and more Christ like we might be sanctified it's not just salvation but it's a whole life work worth of being sanctified being made more and more holy more and more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ and the way we do this is by yielding to who the Holy Spirit who resides within every born-again believer he spoke about the Holy Spirit he said the one who was coming behind him wouldn't just wa uh, baptize with water but he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and he talked other places about the Holy Spirit as well and then fourthly, he spoke, John the Baptist spoke about the danger of unbelief, of self-righteousness, and no true repentance. He told his hearers that there was indeed a wrath to come. Those were his exact words. There, was a, there is a wrath to come. And he preached very boldly about also an unquenchable fire. What was he speaking about there? Right. He was speaking about the reality of hell. Now, that's not a very popular subject in many churches today, is it? A lot of preachers will avoid ever speaking about hell because it makes people uncomfortable. And a lot of people say, well, I don't believe in hell. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, he spoke more about hell than heaven. So how do you say you don't believe in hell, but you do believe in Jesus? If you do believe in Jesus, you've got to believe in what he spoke about. And he, because he loved people... He warned them over and over again about the reality of hell. And John the Baptist did exactly the same thing. He said, remember that the chaff, which is the useless to unbelievers, would one day be burned in unquenchable fire. Okay, then, and you know, by the way, it is not genuine love that doesn't warn people about the reality of eternal punishment in hell. You know, some people will say, I'm just too loving to tell people about hell is that loving is that true love not at all true love tells people the truth and warns them against it okay so he spoke about sin he spoke about the Lord Jesus Christ he spoke about the Holy Spirit he spoke about the reality of hell and then he also spoke about the reality of heaven he spoke about the security of the believer and this is something of course that we as believers needed to need to be reminded of often because even though we believe I hope everybody in this room believes that you have asked Jesus Christ to be your personal Lord and Savior and that you have received him into your life and asked him to uh, save you from your sins and that you truly have been repentant but yet even if we are born again we are still in these we still live in these humid human, frail, finite, limited bodies, and we live in a wicked world which is controlled by the prince of this world, Satan, and therefore we are often faced with doubts and discouragement and um, even a lack of assurance many of us have battled with, a lack of assurance regarding our salvation. We need to remind ourselves that Christ said, now there are many scripture verses to support the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer but for example he said him that cometh to me I will in no wise what 
cast out. He, he told us in John chapter 10 that we are not only secure in his hand, no one can pluck us out of his hand, but whose hand is on top of that keeping us secure? His father's. I mean, we're secure in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and God the Father. We're in there. And he said, Paul said, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor uh, things to come, nor things present, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, I don't know, and we can go on and on. Once saved, always saved. And there are scripture after scripture after scripture to show us. I mean, it wouldn't be eternal life if it wasn't eternal life. It would be temporary life, depending on, you know, then our works to keep us saved. And we aren't saved by works, and we're not kept by works. Anyway, we'll talk more about that as we go through our Life of Christ um, study. But John taught this. John taught this. Uh, Jesus said he would never leave us nor forsake us. And that's a promise made by him. He also said, and, and what he promises will is secure. You can bank on it. <laughs> he also said as he was ascending back up to his Father in heaven, the last words he spoke to his disciples was what? And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. He will guide us safely through this life and ultimately give us eternal glory with him in heaven. Okay, let's move now. Last week, of course, we talked about all the various sects. Not last week. It was, what, four weeks ago. We talked about the various sects of uh, Judaism or Israel at the time of Christ. And now we're going to move to part two of lesson number ten. Here is our outline for today. This, is, this lesson is entitled, Fearless Voice Confronts Fruitless Vipers. And we're going to look at Matthew 3, 7 to 10 and also Luke 3 7 to 14 so the two main places you want to find are Luke, uh, Matthew 3 and Luke 3 we're going to consider John's sermon and we're going to break that sermon down into four subdivisions we're going to look at his confrontation with fake religionists then we're going to look at uh, some conditions for fruitful repentance then we're going to discuss John's caution against father reliance. That sounds silly, but I'm trying to stay with the same letters. And they were relying upon Abraham, their father, for their salvation. And then we're going to discuss his words about cut, the cutting down of fruitless roots. So let's start with John's words um, in confrontation with fake religion. And for this, if you're in Matthew 3, let's look at verse 7. Matthew 3, 7 where it's talking about John. Remember the verse right before it says, and the, the people that came out to John from Jerusalem and all Judea, and they gathered around him in the region of the Jordan River. It says that they were baptized of him in Jordan, doing what? Confessing their sins. Remember his baptism, John's baptism, is not our believer's baptism today. John's baptism was a baptism unto the repentance of, of, of sins. So the people who went to him to be baptized were admitting that they were sinners and they were repenting, changing their mind and their attitude about their sin and about their need for salvation. And of course one day he was going to point his long finger when Jesus came to be baptized and say, Behold, here's the one who is going to do something about your sin. 
here is the Lamb of God. All right, so now in verse 7 it says, But when he, John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said, now here's why he's such a bold preacher. Can you imagine a preacher getting up in his pulpit and looking out at his congregation and saying, Oh, generation of vipers! <laughs> Who hath warned you of the wrath to come? I mean, this guy didn't pull any punches. He says, uh, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Wrath to come. What's he speaking of? Judgment. Okay. Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. Okay, I wasn't supposed to read verse 8, but that doesn't matter. Now, if you flip over real quick to Luke 3. Luke 3, and let's also look at verse 7. It says, it's talking about the same incident. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him. And of course, we were just told that he's specifically speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? All right. John's ministry and message caused quite an interest, as you can imagine, in the nation of Israel, especially since they had not heard from a prophet of God in how many years? 400 years they had not heard from a prophet of God. The last one had been Malachi. Now Luke 3, 7 tells us that a multitude of people came forth to be baptized of John. And a multitude speaks of a multitude. So word had gotten around about this unusual preacher. And a great many people came out to hear him and to be baptized of him. And from Matthew 3.7, we learn that among this large crowd were some Pharisees and Sadducees. And now you know who they are and what they stand for, the religious rulers of Israel. So being the fearless faithful, spirit-filled. Remember, John the Baptist was filled by the Spirit from the time of his mother's womb. Being the spirit-filled forerunner of the Lord that he was, he immediately singled out those religious rulers for a special rebuke, and quite a unique rebuke. By the way, I just thought of this. You know, the one little church service that we went to in uh, Pukan, Chile, where we found this little body of believers, the preacher um, couldn't speak a word of English, but we had our English-Spanish Bible with us, and so we followed along in his message pretty well. And do you know what he preached on? I was just jumping out of my seat. And he was asking, he was a teacher, because he kept asking his congregation questions. And so badly, I wanted to know what those questions were, because I knew I knew the answers. He preached on John the Baptist. I couldn't believe it. And he went verse by verse, and it was really pretty easy to follow along with him. But that was, that was a really neat experience. We had our little Gideon emblems on, and we said to him, Geriones, which is what it is in uh, Spanish, Geriones. And he, he, he burst into this big smile, and he ran to this desk. By the way, that church was really, it had nothing to offer as far as a physical building. They had no heat, and it was very cold. They sat on just wooden slats, you know, pews, just really hard pews. And they were there for several hours, and they were so spirit-filled, and it was so wonderful. And they had little plastic flowers that we'd get, you know, at a real cheap, dollar store or something. That was all they had in the church. And when they passed the plate, a few little coins were in it, was all. 
other than you know what my husband was pretty generous with him. But when we said Gideones, he he ran to this table and he got out this little worn Gideon New Testament. I mean, it was so worn, it looked like the cover was almost going to come off of it. And he was flipping through it, and he was talking in Spanish. I don't know what he said, but maybe he got saved by that Bible. I don't know. But then he came over. He scared my husband to death because he gave him a big hug and kissed him on the cheeks. You know, that's what they do over there. And then he came over to me and did the same thing. So something, he knew the Gideons. We were so excited. We found somebody who did know the Gideons. But that was funny to me that he spoke on, that he was teaching on John the Baptist. All right, so John didn't water down his message to them because of their importance in society. You know, some people might be a little intimidated to speak to some of our politicians or the men of power of our day. You know, maybe we're not quite so timid to speak to the, the custodian, but um, don't give me somebody with a PhD. I'm just too scared. He, John the Baptist, wasn't scared of the power men in his day. He didn't water down his message. He didn't beat around the bush fearing for perhaps his own potential loss of prestige among them. I mean, these were, these were the men of that day in Israel. And uh, if he played his cards right, you know, maybe they would give him a place of prominence. Maybe he could go to Jerusalem and preach from the temple. But he didn't care. None of that mattered to him. He called it like it was. And um, he confronted them precisely at the point where they needed to be confronted. And he did it in such a manner that they were not able to miss his point or his serious warning. Have you ever been to a church where the preacher was trying to get a point across, but he wanted to tiptoe around it so gently that you never really got the point? <laughs> because he really didn't want to take anybody out of their comfort zone. You know, we need to be shoved around and gotten out of our comfort zone. I was last night, big time, at a service we had at our church. I was really moved out of my comfort zone. But that's good. We need to have that. Um, he was, John was fully aware of the insincerity of these religious men, and he knew that, and remember, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He knew that they were not there at his uh, place of baptism in order to confess their sinfulness with genuine repentance. So we might ask the question, well, why were they there? Why were these Pharisees and Sadducees present among the multitudes gathered to await John's baptism of repentance. Well, it's possible that these representatives, and we don't know how many of each there were, but let's say there's a small contingent of Pharisees and a small contingent of Sadducees, and they're probably standing far apart from one another, because remember, they don't like each other. If you remember our last lesson, they don't stand for the same things at all. But it's possible that these were representatives um, sent by the Sanhedrin in order to um, check John out, you know, go go up there to go over there to the Jordan and check this guy out, see what he's all about. So perhaps they were there kind of as spies to check him out. Maybe they were just uh, personally curious to hear and and see what this strange wilderness preacher was all about, because they would have definitely heard quite a bit about him. Word traveled fast. Their thinking might have been that if John was a true prophet of God, they perhaps could coerce him into joining up with them. If they could gain, you know, he was already very popular with the people, the common people. So if they could gain his favor and his support and his popularity with the people, then they maybe were thinking that they would go ahead and fake his baptism, I mean, after all, all it would do would get them wet, and um, 
therefore uh, they could take over his movement and sort of you know act as his personal campaign managers so maybe they were there hoping that they could kind of persuade maybe the Sadducees thought well we can get him on our side he's so popular with the people that'll help maybe the Pharisees were thinking the same thing we don't know this is all just speculation but whatever their motives were for being there at the Jordan River we know because John knew we know that their motives were not godly motives they were not seeking God's truth or God's will for their lives and they were not repentant about their sins in fact they were not even uh, willing to admit their sins they were like they, they were the same self-righteous hypocrites that they'd always been in John knew that and so he called it just like it was when he saw them he cried out those words "O generation of vipers who hath warned thee to flee from the wrath to come now the Lord Jesus would later and remember John has never heard the Lord Jesus preach okay but the Lord Jesus would later on use that exact same expression O generation of vipers when he was speaking to Pharisees on several different occasions such as in Matthew 12 34 and Matthew 23 33 use the exact same uh, expression generation of vipers now a viper what is a viper right a viper is a very small and poisonous deadly poisonous desert snake John of course grew up and lived where in the desert he lived in the desert so he would have been very familiar with vipers I actually had a picture but I forgot to bring one of these blank overheads to show you but um, I have a, I had a picture of a viper maybe I'll bring it next week but a viper is a tricky little creature because it tends to um, remain absolutely still just lay perfectly still in order to trick its prey like you know we say playing possum that's what it does it plays possum it just lies there very still and when a little viper it's a little snake but it's deadly when it lies still it just looks like a harmless broken branch you know that has fallen from a tree so they were um, frequently picked up by mistake when people were out collecting firewood and who do you think of when I'm talking about this anybody Paul remember the, the Apostle Paul when he was shipwrecked on the Isle of Malta this is in Acts 28 uh, someone perhaps he himself someone had accidentally picked up a viper with their firewood and thrown it in the fire and when Paul was standing near the fire this viper came out of the heat and he fastened his fangs into Paul's onto Paul's hand and and bit him and of course the people thought well he is he's doomed to die he, he this guy this is this is a really bad person because first of all the ship was wrecked because of Paul <laughs> and now a snake has come out and bit him and so they all sat around and waited for Paul to die for being such a bad person but what happened I mean in those days in first century the well he wasn't in Israel but in the in the first century world if you got a viper bite you died it was fatal and so they just sat there and wa waited for Paul to die die but of course miraculously God spared him 
and, uh, and he didn't even get sick, and therefore the people of Malta decided that instead of a bad person, he had to be a god. So they started trying to worship him. Well, that was a viper bite. So you see, by calling the Pharisees and the Sadducees a generation of vipers, John the Baptist was declaring the danger of their religious phoniness and hypocrisy, which along with their wicked works, they had received from the original serpent himself. And who was that? Satan. Just like the little desert viper, which also appears harmless when it looks like it's just a dead branch, Israel's religious rulers also appeared to be totally harmless. Jesus called them whited sepulchers. I mean, they were so clean and pious looking on the outside, just like Satan. When he originally appeared in the garden, did he appear like a, the dangerous thing that he is? No, he was one of the most beautiful creatures Eve had ever seen. He was glorious to look upon. So that's what he's saying here. He's saying, you know, they look like they're so harmless, these scribes, not scribes, but these Pharisees and Sadducees, and yet they, the reality of the situation was that they were deadly poisonous. Following the ways and the teachings of the Sadducees and the Pharisees was spiritually fatal. That's what John was communicating. Now, if you will not mind flipping over real quick to Matthew 23, this is what I call the Lord's woe sermon. You know it, where he says woe unto you so many times to the scribes and the Pharisees. Look at verse 13, where he says the Lord Jesus was blatantly rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, uh, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye that are entering to go in. And then look on, I mean, just look at all the things Jesus said. He said his most severe words against who? The religious people. People who actually had the, the Bible. And yet he spoke his most severe words to them, calling them hypocrites over and over again. Look at verse 16, where he calls them blind guides. Look at verse 17. What does he call them in 17? Fools and blind. Again in verse 19, fools and blind. Verse 23, hypocrites. You can look at verse uh, 24, blind guides. Verse 25, hypocrites. 26, blind. 27 is where he calls them whited sepulchers, beautiful outward but within, full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Verse 29, hypocrites again. I mean, just over and over again. Then verse 33, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. So you can go back to, uh, to John. We, we find here that um, John, I can't say he was following in the steps of his Lord, but he certainly, they both had the same Holy Spirit, didn't they? And they were speaking out very condemnatory words to religious rulers. You know, the, the most dangerous people on the face of this earth are false teachers. False teachers. And that's exactly what these scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees were. And so Jesus, just like John, accused them of, having, of being responsible for preventing multitudes of Jews from entering into the kingdom of heaven. That's what I thought about there when we were in Chile and listening to the, the uh, priests on the television. Channel after channel had priests speaking to the people 
about worshiping Mary and, and praying to Mary and having her intercede to her son on their behalf. And uh, when we went up to the top of that mountain and heard all the speakers up there and everything, I thought about, oh, not only are they deceiving themselves, but they are deceiving so many multitudes of people who just think because they are members of this particular church that they are going to make it to heaven. That is so incredibly sad. And it's, I wouldn't want to be in those people, the, the leaders of the church, their shoes for anything. But we can go into Protestantism and say the exact same thing because how many Protestant churches are filled with, with men who are not teaching their people the right, the truth, the gospel. I mean, so many get right up to it, and then they don't want to offend anybody, so they don't tell them the simple way of salvation, which even a child can understand. You must receive Christ. You can't just know about him up here and nod your head and say, yeah, I know about Christ. You have to receive him. To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And they get just short of that, and they don't tell their people how to get saved. And that's why we have churches full of people who think that they are okay, and they're not. They have never truly been born again. But the danger for those men behind the, the pulpit is going to be so intense, because not only are they leading themselves down the road of destruction, but they are making their proselytes twofold the children of hell, as Jesus called them sad. It's a heavy, heavy weight to carry. All right, um, so always, please, always make me accountable <laughs> to tell you how to be saved, even if you don't like to hear it, even if it offends you. I'm sorry, that's the way of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, not by anybody else, but by Jesus Christ. Yes, it is intolerant. Yes, it is a narrow-minded faith, but it is the true one, and it is the only one. Truth is just like that. Truth is very narrow. There's only one right answer for every mathematical or scientific question there is, or whatever question. There's one right answer, and there's one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. All right, B, part B of our outline. Let's look at the conditions for fruitful repentance, and for this we'll look at Matthew 3, 8. And also then we'll go over to Luke 3, 8. All right, in, in 3, 8 of Matthew, it says, Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. That's what he's telling the religious rulers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You need to prove your repentance by fruits of repentance. All right, let's see what he says over in Luke 3, verse 8, and then I'll skip to 10. Um, he says exactly the same thing. Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of re repentance. And begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our fathers. For I say unto you that God is able to raise to, to, of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Okay, let me skip that because we're going to talk about that next. Let's go down to verse 10. And the people asked him. Now, this is the common people asked him saying what? Underline that if you want to. What shall we do then? The common people understood what he was saying, and they wanted to know what should they do about their sinful condition. And he answered them, he answereth and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat or food, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans. Now who are they? Tax collectors. 
not very liked by the people. But the tax collectors came, the publicans came to be baptized, and they said unto him, Master, again, same question, what shall we do? They also wanted to genuinely repent of their sin. And he said unto them, exact or take no more than that which is appointed you. And who else came? The soldiers. Now, you know what this speaks of? This speaks of the fact that there were Gentile soldiers. There were Roman soldiers in the crowd. And likewise, they demanded of him, saying, What shall we do? They also wanted to truly listen to John and do what he said to do. And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. That tells us they complained a lot about their salary. <laughs> All right, and then verse 15 goes on to something different. We'll talk about next week. Now, in what I just read, do you hear Pharisees and Sadducees coming to John and saying, Master, what shall we do then? No. They're the only group. We have the common people. We have sinners like the publicans. And we have even Gentile soldiers all wanting to know and do the right thing. But not the religious rulers. They didn't ask him. All right, in Matthew 3, 8, John demanded true repentance from Israel's religious re rulers and, of course, all the other people that were there. He demanded that they demonstrate evidence of genuine repentance, which, of course, we know the religious rulers were not able to do because they weren't truly repentant. And then he proceeded to mention, you know, when these other groups of people came to them, to him, he mentions several examples of fruits of repentance about which he was referring. And when he, you know, if I said to you, well, show me some fruit that you truly are repentant of your sinful condition, here's what some of them would be. To the crowd in general, to the common people in general, he said, if you have two coats, what are you to do? You know, if we have ex excess and we see our neighbor in need, what are we to do? If we're truly right with God, we will want to give that needy person out of our abundance. We'll give them one of our coats. If we have two, we can only wear one at a time, so we'll give him or her the other one. Or if we have an abundance of food and we see somebody starving, what will we do? We'll share, we'll give them some of our food. In other words, he was stating the fact that sharing one's possessions and one's food with the needy would be an evidence of true repentance. Now, this is not something that the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees did or, or would do unless they truly, truly did repent. And then to some tax collectors who had come and to be baptized, he um, answered them. He said, exact or collect no more than what is appointed to you because that was the big thing that tax collectors would do. They would get rich because they would charge more tax to the people than they were supposed to. They'd give the Romans their tax and then the, the, the leftover they would put in their own pockets. So he said, only tax the people what you're supposed to and no more. So do unto others what? As you would have them do unto you. And then to the Gentile Roman soldiers, similar question, he answered and said, don't do violence to any man, neither accuse any man falsely, and what else? Be content with your wages because I imagine they always grumbled about how they weren't they were overworked and underpaid so all these things sound like basically um, 
just common sense things that are taught in the rest of Scripture, the Ten Commandments, you know, or the Golden Rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And as Paul says, you know, we are to be content no matter what state we find ourselves. And so these are some of the fruits of repentance that he is telling the people about. Now, by his answers to these various groups, John the Baptist was illustrating the same truth which James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, would later on state in his epistle. I imagine if James and John the Baptist ever got together, which they are probably doing in heaven, but on earth, I don't think they ever met, but they would have gotten along just great. Because remember, James is the one who taught that faith, if it has no works, is what? dead. So that's exactly really the same thing John is teaching here. You know, if, if, um, if you're truly repentant, there's going to be some evidence of it. There's going to be some fruit of that. An individual's actions and words reveal his inner heart condition and attitude toward God. The, actually, the relationship that we have horizontally with, um, with our fellow man indicates that's a good indicator of our relationship vertically with God so if you watch somebody and see how they treat other people you can pretty much determine how their relationship with God might be genuine heart repentance will bring forth the fruit of good works now we're not saved by our works but true faith brings forth good fruit and that can be seen in a person's attitude and his actions toward others. A right relationship with God results in a right relationship with people. Um, I'm behind a transparency, so just wait a minute. There's the tax collectors. It says in 1 John 4.20, If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, what is he? He's a liar. So if you say you love God and you have hatred for a brother or a sister, then you're a liar. That's what the scripture says. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? John was telling the people assembled around him for baptism that genuine repentance of sin gives evidence of its genuineness by producing fruits of righteousness in other words by good works toward other people now at this point we probably should understand the difference between repentance and regret repentance and regret many people in the scripture demonstrate um, regret over their wrongdoings or their sins. Can you give me some examples of people in the Bible who regretted their sin or, or their wrongdoing? They might not even recognize it as sin. Judas Iscariot was one great example. Yeah, he, he really regretted what he had done. True regret. <laughs> How about somebody else? Well, David is going to be my example for something else. Okay, thank you. <laughs> He, uh, yeah, he did regret it, but he got to the point where he was supposed to be with true repentance. He's going to be the one I contrast that with. Who? Saul. Yes, King Saul. King Saul, you know, when he went to the witch of Endor and, and, uh, and whatever he did there <laughs> was not good, and he regretted that. He didn't have long to regret it because God took his life. Uh, who else? Anybody? Anybody think of anyone? What about Pharaoh? He regretted, especially when his oldest son died, when the angel of death 
passed over and his firstborn son died. Um, the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and asked, you know, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, you know, well, you have to give everything away. We'll talk about that one day so you understand it a little better. But uh, he walked away. He regretted that. He regretted that he didn't do what was right. But the difference between regret and repentance is tremendous. What we do see is true repentance in a man like King David. Now, he did big time bad. Would you ever invite a man to be your preacher of your local church if he had an adulterous affair with his neighbor's wife and then got her pregnant and killed her husband? Would you call that man to be your preacher? <laughs> I hope not. But that was King David. But the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. I mean, this talks about the mercy and grace of God, right? But you see, David truly repented. I mean, that's what you can read about in Psalm 51. Read it. That's David's repentance. And it was heartfelt. It was genuine. He truly recognized that his sin had been against a holy God. And there's a world of difference between Peter. Okay, Peter was another example. He denied the Lord three times. Oh, and when he realized what he had done, he went out and he whipped, wept. <laughs> he whipped bitterly. <laughs> he wept bitterly. He was truly repentant. I mean, you know, the Lord knows we're not going to live perfect lives and we're going to make all kinds of sins and, um, and, and mistakes. And it's wonderful that he has 1 John 1, 9 in the Bible that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness if we're genuinely repentant of those sins. And David was and Peter was and there are other men who were. Regret is basically very self-centered. It's sorrow over the personal consequences that the person who has sinned realizes that he or she is going to have to suffer for having committed that particular sin. So you see, regret is really self-centered because you know, uh-oh, I goofed up big time and I'm going to have to live with those consequences. So it's not that you feel sorry, genuinely sorry that you have sinned against a holy God. It's sorriness that you're going to have to suffer because of what you did. So that's the difference between um, regret and repentance. And uh, the religious rulers did not. He, he was trying to expose this truth to them. Um, he was trying to expose that truth to them, not because he didn't have a heart of love toward them, but to the contrary, because he did care about them. Same thing with Jesus, why he was so... Um, his words were so harsh with the religious rulers because that's what he, it took to get any of them to wake up and face the truth, face the facts. They, they loved them. John and Jesus loved the religious rulers, and that's why they spoke so harshly to them, to wake them up and get them to realize their own need for salvation. Okay, caution against fatherhood reliance. Let's move quickly. I thought I had a short lesson, but I'm sure I'm making this long. Okay, let's look at Matthew 3, 9. It says, John says, And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Okay, um, it says essentially the same thing over in Luke 3, 8, so I won't go there. Seeming to know what the Pharisees and the scribes, the Sadducees were thinking, you know, what they were going to use as their little excuse next. John warned them against depending on Abraham to get them into heaven. He said, uh, 
Think not that uh, you have Abraham as your father, because I say unto you that God is of these stones. He probably looked around him and there were stones on the ground, or perhaps he was looking at some of the people around him. I'll explain that in a minute. And he said, God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. You see, most Jews believed that just because they were descendants of Abraham and members of God's chosen race, that they were spiritually destined for heaven, just because of their ancestry and at, at least this we know this is what the Pharisees believed the Sadducees remember didn't even believe in an afterlife so they believed because they were descendants of Abraham that they were going to be rewarded in this life but um, the, the all the other Jews believed that just because they were descendants of Abraham they were Jews that they were going to inherit eternal life many Old and New Testament Jews as well as many Jewish people today especially Orthodox Jewish people today, many believe that their Jewishness assures them of a reservation in God's kingdom. Rabbis actually teach that all Jews have a portion in the world to come, regardless of whether they're good or bad. So in other words, no Jew will ever experience eternal punishment in hell. All will have some portion. Maybe they teach different levels or something of heaven. But no Jew, they even teach, some rabbis even teach that Abraham himself stands at the gate of hell to prevent any Jew from ever entering. Now we know that that's totally contrary to scripture. And it was for this sort of um, ignorant presumption regarding their relationship with Abraham that John the Baptist rebuked the religious rulers here. Um, the Jews generally believed that only Gentiles would occupy hell. Wasn't that nice? Well, I mean, there's a lot of religions like that today. Uh, you look at the Muslims. They believe all of us. Well, they, they put us together with the Jews. We're all Gentiles. Isn't that something? The Jews are Gentiles to the Muslims, and that we're all destined for hell. And only Muslims are going to occupy heaven. Um, but they, the Jews believe only Gentiles would occupy hell. They thought of Gentiles as spiritually dead and lifeless stones as far as their relationship to God was concerned. So what John was doing here, he was playing on the concept, their concept of Gentiles as lifeless stones when he said, and perhaps he did point to the people around, maybe he pointed to the Gentile soldiers who were there and said, God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Is that what God has done? It's exactly what God has done. He has taken hundreds of millions, I'm one of them, of once dead Gentile stones, quote unquote, and made them into living stones or lively stones, as it says in 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5. And together, collectively, all of us living stones make up, Jew or Gentile, we make up his church. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are Abraham's seed. You and I are also Abraham's seed. Paul wrote, he said, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You are a spiritual child of Abraham. He reiterated this in Galatians 3.29 when he said, And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So God did take dead stones and made us into um, 
children of Abraham. The religious rulers of Israel, as well as most of the Jewish people, were relying on their bloodline from Abraham to save them, rather than relying on their faith in God, which was what really made Abraham the father of faith. That's what made him, uh, that's what justified him. We are justified by faith, not by bloodline, right? There are thousands of people, unfortunately, not just the Jews, but thousands of people, millions of people, who have lived and died under similar blind delusions, believing that just because they are connected with some particular nationality or some particular family line or some particular church denomination or some particular church, a religion, that they are guaranteed a place in heaven. That's so sad. But you can go around the world. You don't have to go to South America. You can go to uh, China and Buddhism, or you can go to any of the Arabic worlds. Um, you can go to where the Hindus are, you know, Africa, and all the different religions around the world, and see how, and even Protestantism, and see how many people are blindly disillusioned into thinking that just because they belong to a particular church or religion that they are going to make it to heaven but this, and this is why it is so very critical to understand that salvation is based not on an individual person's relationship to anyone or anything else other than the Lord Jesus Christ okay cutting of fruitless roots we're almost through let's look at Matthew 3:10 where it says and now all this is still John speaking this is still his sermon and now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth forth not, with bringeth not forth good fruit, is hewn down and cast into the fire. At the end of a harvest season, the first-century Israeli farmer would go through his field and his vineyard, and he would look for all those plant, trees or plants or vines which had borne no fruit or at least no good fruit and what would he do he would take his axe and he would cut it down those fruitless plants or vines would then be um, gathered together and what burned and he did this so that they were they were not productive and so he did this so that the um, there would be more room for the trees that were producing fruit this is much like uh, what Jesus spoke of in Matthew 13 when he said, you know, that the true, the wheat, which is true believers, would be gathered and barned, whereas the tares that had been sown in among the wheat would be gathered and burned. Remember I ended our last lesson saying, would you rather be barned or burned? Wheat or tares? Uh, this is the same illustration. All the, all the, the fruitless vines would be cut down. Uh, now, the harvest season cutting down of fruitless trees was what John had in mind when he rebuked the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he said those words to them. And as I said, the Lord Jesus spoke the same words when he talked about the tares and the wheat. He also spoke on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, on the, on the night of his arrest. He described for us false disciples, and he used these words. He said, If a man abide not in me... He is cast forth as a branch and is withered. Men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. 
You know, I told you before, and I'll say it again, Jesus talked more about the reality of hell than he did about heaven. Only because he loves men so much. He's the one who died so they don't have to go to hell. He loved them so much he's trying to warn them against the danger of, of hell. So both John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus gave serious warning to anyone who refused to turn to God for forgiveness and salvation. And it is refreshing to see that there were many people in the multitude that, that was gathered around him who, after having heard his warning and after having heard this sermon, um, did sincerely ask him, what shall we do then? These people not only included the common folk, but they also included, as we'll see as we go through the life of Christ, uh, people such as publicans, the base sinners. There were probably even some prostitutes who might have asked him, what shall we do then? And it included Gentile soldiers as well. However, as I also mentioned earlier, no mention is made of any of those religious rulers coming to John and also asking him, what shall we do then? Thus, the acts would soon be laid unto their roots. And we know that this did indeed occur. They were cut down at their roots, the religious rulers. Now, there were some who came to the Lord, but in general, they were cut down at their roots when? 70 A.D., just a few years after the Lord's death, they were cut down when Titus Vespasian came into Jerusalem and destroyed it, destroyed the temple, because after that, all of the Sadducees and all of the Pharisees went out of existence. They had not brought forth good fruit, and they literally were hewn down, which was a very tragic ending for men who had God's holy truth and had studied it all their lives. That is really a tragedy. Okay, thank you for your patience. Let's close in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you again for our time spent together in your word. I thank you for each and every of one of these wonderful women who sit and listen so patiently when they have so many other things I know they could be doing, but I thank you and appreciate their time spent to get to know you better. And I pray that you would richly bless them for their faithfulness and for their hunger for your word. We know when it, it, blessed are the hungry, for they shall be satisfied. Teach us, Lord, to each be diligent students of your precious scripture so that we might be equipped to fight off the fiery darts of the wicked one and so that we are better equipped to witness and to share with others about the one who saved us and also so that we might ourselves become more like Jesus Christ. And Father, we also pray that we might know true humility and true repentance before you. And may we rely on no relationship for salvation other than our personal relationship by grace through faith with your Son, in whose name we do pray. Amen.